Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. This is perfect. Summer, sunset, dining on the sidewalk. You're right, it is perfect. And I know it's cliche, but the best penne alla vodka is right here on the corner of Mulberry and Broom Street, here in the heart of Little Italy. You keep your penne and I'll stick with their gnocchi. It's beyond amazing. You know what dish I wish Grata Azura would bring back? Mm. Grandma's meatballs. Mm, Yes, those were amazing. Yeah, they were. This is such a perfect setting. Almost romantic, don't you think? I suppose. Shall we reenact the scene from last night's show? I mean, I'm not wearing a tie, but you could still reach over the table and pull me in for a kiss. Only if you promise to sing in front of all these people like the man himself. Ooh, I'm not sure I can do him justice. (laughs) Okay, you get off on the singing part this time. But let's not lose this romantic moment. Would you settle for a walk down Mulberry Street and some of the best gelato in town? Sold. All right. Sounds like we got a winning end on this deal. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the runaway hit musical, Jersey Boys. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Who loves you, pretty baby? Who's gonna help you through the night? Well, we're here and we got all the help you need as we bring you the story of four guys from the little known state called New Jersey. Of course, that means we're talking about the hit jukebox musical, Jersey Boys. This hit packed tell all of how Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons came to be and the struggles they endured took Broadway by storm, and thrilled audiences around the world, and continues to do so even here today in the Big Apple. But before they learned to walk like a man, they had to start at the beginning, just like us. In the early 2000s, Bob Gaudio, a original Four Season member, sought to make a musical from the discography of the band. He hired book writers Rick Ellis and Mar- Marshall Bickman, and director Des McAnuff at the suggestion of Michael David of Dodger Theatricals. Brickman suggested creating a show about the band's history instead of repurposing their songs for an independent story the way ABBA did with Mamma Mia. Brickman was drawn to the project because, quote, it's a classic American story. It's rags to riches and back to rags, end quote. Little was known to the public about the group's history prior to the premiere of the musical. 
because the magazines of the era did not write much about them. In their research, Brickman and Ellis were surprised to find that the members had prison records, which might have prevented their music from being played if they had been publicized when they were active. According to Gaudio, quote, Back then, things were a little clean-cut. Don't forget. So the idea of our story getting out was horrifying to us, end quote. Other bands of the time projected street-tough images, but the Four Seasons cleaned themselves up in order to be palatable for mainstream listeners. Brickman and Elis also used materials from interviews with surviving Four Season members Gaudio, Frankie Valli, and Tommy DeVito. While the Four Seasons as a group made headlines, as individuals they did not receive much press due to groups like the Beatles receiving the attention. Brickman noted that each member had its own perspective on what happened during their tenure as a group. Of the three, they approached DeVito last, who told them, quote, don't listen to those guys. I'll tell you what really happened, end quote. Ellis said that getting DeVito's version was a eureka moment, and the contradiction in their stories ended up being incorporated in the musical for a Rashomon effect. The writers were also contacted by family members by the late mob boss Jip DiCarlo to ensure that he would be portrayed respectfully. Although Gaudio was part of the initial development team, he was not involved in the creative process during tryouts and only met the cast once the show had premiered. Gaudio, Valley, and DeVito had decided to step back from the show's creative process because they lacked objectivity. And they left it to Brickman, Ellis, and McAnuff to take the story to the stage. However, Gaudio and Valley still had final say on whether to end the show if they did not like it. Jersey Boys premiered at the La Jolla Playhouse at University of California, San Diego in an out-of-town tryout on October 5th, 2004. It ran through January 16th, 2005. Before we head to the other coast, let's take a moment to introduce the creative team. Book was by Marshall Brickman and Rick Ellis. Music by Bob Gaudio. Lyrics by Bob Crew. Orchestrations by Steve Oric. Directed by Des McAnuff. Choreography by Sergio Trujillo. Scenic design by Clara uh, Ziglarova. Costume design by Jess Goldstein. Lighting design by Howell Binkley. Sound design by Steve Canyon Kennedy. Projection design by Michael Clark. And wig and hair design by Charles G. LaPointe. The show rolled up at the August Wilson Theater on November 6, 2005. It would remain there for over 11 years and 4,642 performances, closing on January 15, 2017. The show would reopen months later, just down the street at New World Stages, on November 22, 2017, where it still plays. The show had to close in March 2020 due to the pandemic, but reopened on November 15, 2021. Jersey Boys still is listed as the 12th longest-running Broadway musical. That season, the show would be nominated for eight Tony Awards and would boogie away that evening with four. Those four would be for Best Musical, Best Actor in a Musical, John Lloyd Young, who played Frankie Valli, Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Christian Hoff, who played Tommy DeVito, and Best Lighting Design of a Musical for Hal Binkley.
The show would then set off around the world in various production and tours, including the West End, Las Vegas, Japan, Canada, Australia, and the Netherlands, as well as several U.S. tours. An original cast recording was made by Rhino Entertainment. The album, Jersey Boy's original Broadway cast recording, released in November 2005, which won the 2007 Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album. In February 2008, the album was certified gold, having shipped more than 500,000 copies in the U.S. In October of 2009, the cast album was certified platinum, selling over 1 million copies in the U.S. A movie adaptation of the musical, with John Lloyd Young reprising his role as Frankie Valli and directed by Clint Eastwood, was released in 2014. A pro-shot taping of the musical starring Nick Jonas as Frankie Valli, Andy Carl as Tommy DeVito, C.J. Palakowski as Bob Gaudio, and Matt Bogart as Nick Massey is currently in the works. The last thing we want to mention in some noteworthy is some noteworthy charity work attached to the show. Jersey Boy Chicago has been honored two years in a row at the Broadway Cares event for being the top fundraiser in the tour category. In 2008, the Jersey Boy Chicago raised 20, uh, sorry, $220,000 for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. For every ticket sold uh, for every Broadway performance in the month of October 2010, $1 was donated to the VH1 Save the Music Foundation. Jersey Boys aimed to raise funds to restore one full music education program in a New York City school. The show eventually raised $43,521, enough to restore the instrumental music education program at PS85 in the Bronx. Plans were made to donate additional funds raised to a second VH1 Save the Music Foundation grant recipient school. All right, that was a lot, but I feel like we're all set for the real thing. So let's get the real scoop on these four guys from Jersey. Sesuarela, a modern pop rap song that was released in 2000, is performed. Tommy DeVito arrives, introduces himself, and explains how the song is a cover of the Four Seasons. He offers to tell the story of the band, explaining how he started out with the group, the Variety Trio, with his brother Nick DeVito, and friend Nick Massey, eventually discovering teenager Frankie Castelluccio and taking him under his wing, teaching him everything he knows. During these early years, Nick Massey helped train Frankie to sing. Tommy went in and out of prison. Frankie changed his last name to Valley. Tommy and Frankie developed a good relationship with mob boss Jip DiCarlo, and Frankie fell in love with and married Mary Delgado. Musically, the band was still struggling and kept changing their name and sound, but without any dramatic success. 
One day, friend and fellow Jersey boy, Joe Pesci, comes up to Tommy and says that he knows a singer-songwriter who'd make the perfect fourth for their band, Bob Gaudio. Bob Gaudio takes over the narration, telling the audience that no matter what Tommy says, he was not plucked from obscurity since he already had a hit single with Short Shorts. Bob goes with Joe Pesci to see the band perform and is immediately impressed by Frankie's voice. Bob performs a song he has just written, Cry For Me, on piano, which makes Frankie, Nick Massey, and then Tommy join in with vocals, bass, and guitar, respectively. They negotiate an agreement, though Tommy is at first skeptical that Bobby, then still a teenager, will be good for the band. The band eventually eventually gets a contract with producer Bob Crew, but only to sing backup. Crew insists that the band has an identity crisis and needs to make firm a firm decision on the name and a sound. The band name the band then names themselves after the Four Seasons Bowling Alley, and Bobby writes them three songs that finally propel them to stardom. Sherry, Big Girls Don't Cry, and Walk Like a Man. In the wake of their success, Bob also chalks up a personal first by losing his virginity. The band's success means that they tour a lot more, along the way discovering the girl band The Angels. Unfortunately, the constant touring strains Frankie's marriage to Mary and they eventually divorce. The band continues to enjoy chart success until, after a concert, the band is approached by a loan shark out to claim money owed by Tommy. Act 2 begins with Nick Massey taking over as narrator. He explains that Bob was so focused on the band's musical success and the future that he could not see that the band had been in trouble for some time. Tommy has been racking up debts and a forgotten bill during a previous tour lands the band in jail over the weekend, which strains things between Tommy and Bob. Nick observes that Tommy became jealous of Frankie's success and closeness with Bobby and attempted to seduce Frankie's new girlfriend, Lorraine. The two never confronted each other about it, but the old friendship was not what it used to be. When the lone shark approaches the band for the $150,000 owed by Tommy, Frankie goes to Jip DiCarlo for help despite Tommy's insistence that he does not need it. The band, Jip, and the Lone Shark come to an agreement. Tommy is to be sequestered in Las Vegas, where the mob can keep an eye on him, and the band will willingly cover the debt, along with an accidental, or excuse me, an additional half a million in unpaid taxes that Tommy kept hidden from the group. At this time, Nick declares that he is tired of everything and wants out, despite Frankie and Bob trying to convince him to stay. Frankie takes over the narration, explaining that though he owes Tommy a great deal, he is aware that their friendship was not ideal, and he never understood why Nick decided to leave. Frankie and Bob find replacements to keep the band a quartet until Bobby announces that he has never been comfortable in the spotlight and that Frankie should be a single, i.e. Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. In his personal life, Frankie's relationship with his daughter Francine is strained and he breaks up with Lorraine. Frankie continues to have success thanks to Bobby's songs and hits uh, the jackpot with Come On Marianne and the almost never released Can't Take My Eyes Off Of You, which Bobby fights to get airplay for. 
along with the success of working my way back to you, Frankie and Bobby finally finish paying off Tommy's debts, and Frankie's life is good until his daughter Francine dies from a drug overdose. Bob Crude describes the Four Seasons 1990 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which reunited the original four members on stage one last time. Each member takes a moment to address the audience in turn, explaining his pride at having been with the band and briefly notes what he did afterwards. The The end. end. Now that we've gotten that out of the way. Oh, that. Let's talk about the parts we liked. And the parts we didn't. If there were parts we didn't. I thought this was a very effective and interesting show. Like, it is a jukebox musical. And it's interesting because we were having a conversation with some friends of ours last night about jukebox or... um, what was I calling it? Um, cookie cutter? They were calling it cookie cutter. I was calling it... Formula? Formula shows, where there's like a formula. You put it in and it cranks it out. Um, and, you know, so this is a jukebox show. Um, but I think it's a very effective one. And and what I love about it is, you obviously, you get the great hits of it, uh, of the group. But there's a really good, meaty story there, too. Um, I like that to me there was like um, kind of an inversion of the purpose of music and lyrics. Follow me on this rabbit hole. Okay, I was like, please explain. So typically the book, the lyrics will help move the story forward more than the music will, typically. In a jukebox. Particularly in a jukebox musical. Yes. But in this one I found that the music did a lot more propelling. We saw a lot more movement from like the the, the songs were what was moving us through time, mm-hmm. and the dialogue was more commenting on that point in time. We didn't necessarily see the story move forward because of the dialogue. It was more of the um, the songs. Be- the songs were the um, vehicle. Yeah, well, not the vehicle, but like the thing, the spark, the. I'm trying to think of the scientific term that, that just made everything go. The catalyst? The catalyst. There. See, you're smart. <laughs> yeah. The songs to me in the show were the catalyst. And then you had the book that was more explaining like, okay, so this is how this song came to be. And da, 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 you know, it was almost like a glorified concert in a way, in the best way. Right. Well, because we've <clears throat> talked about other jukebox musicals, um, but this one, like... The thing that made Jersey Boy special is it was kind of the behind the music, mm-hmm. like, narrative, but also, like, it did a great job using the, the music in two different ways. Mm-hmm. To not only show, like, a catalog of what was happening when these songs were created, but also the effects that those music, that the music had on that point yes. in time as well. Yes, 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 exactly. I mean, there were a couple of songs there... Just like they were, they were songs to be there, like "My Boyfriend's Back" or mm-hmm. uh, "In My Mother's Eyes," 
things mm-hmm. like that that were just pertinent for the scene. But there were also songs that, I mean, all of their hits. I, I love the fact that, you know, suddenly a, a, a dummy tune pops in my head. I jot down some dummy lyrics and all of a sudden we have a hit and it's Sherry. And mm-hmm. they sing it on a phone, you know. And I, I love the fact that, that we get that commentary and the next thing you know, they're singing Sherry. And and all of a sudden we get a little bit of backstory and all this we hear big girls on cry, mm-hmm. and then they go right into walk like a man. We all know these songs, but they just give this like thirty second. Here's this, you know. We didn't need to know what was happening politically at the time or historically at the time. It was all about these guys. And the other thing I really liked was you got the story from all four guys' points of view. Yes, without repeating. All four guys' points of view. Exactly. Like, I love that they kind of... Instead of instead of the narrative of, okay, I'm passing the mic to have someone tell it, it was almost like, yeah, no, 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 I'm going to grab the mic and I'm going to pick up from here. Right. Which was very much that Jersey narrative as well. Like, ah, no, 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 this is where you got it wrong. Like, let me jump in. Because I remember we had Tommy DeVito at first. We had Bob, Bob Gaudio. And then we had Nick... And then Frankie finished it all. Mm-hmm. Which also, like the group, Frankie finished it all. Right. You know, I, and, and I think it's it's perfect. One one thing I'll say now, while it's on my mind, um, you had four different points of view. They're the four seasons. Mm-hmm. You had four different time periods of the group, like four seasons. I just... Yeah. I mean that's uh, that's a surface level interpretation, but it's it's a smart interpretation. I mean they do go through and they have like that comic book thing in the background that says like fall, okay. spring. Well, I mean that's the thing is that I think they start like in the spring as the group is budding, then they have the summer where it's huge success, and they have the fall where things are starting to die, and then the winter. They don't end in the best way, but there's some there's potential. You know, underneath all that snow, you know, they are. Spring the will come seasons. again. Yeah, they are the four seasons still. That's still Frankie Valley and the four seasons, you know, but it's never going to be what it was. Quite what it was. Exactly. Well, so why don't we take this opportunity since we're already talking about things in the foreground? Let's talk about the set. Uh, so I thought it was great. It was simple metal, fire escape, scaffolding. It, like, it, it felt grungy and unpolished. Not really. I, I dare, dare I say, like, not high class, which felt... People of Jersey, I don't mean to offend you, but it felt very acceptable. Like, mm-hmm. they weren't trying to paint themselves from... I am from a, a higher class. Like, they're from the streets kind of thing. And so this felt like the right... It, it felt well, appropriate. You, yeah, because you had um, basically that catwalk uh, scaffolding that did give that prison feel also gave that street fill but also they used it to tell the story of people coming in and out of their lives and in and out of their story um which i think was a great physicalization of that right and i also like the simplicity of setting the stage you know just using like the the table or the the simple like half of the car for the car scene or just the bed for the hotel like there was no huge set coming on and off to to show um, these different spaces. I mean, the recording studio was a mic. These four guys stood around, and then this, like, plexiglass screen that came in front of, of crew. 
mm-hmm. you know. That was the recording studio in the middle of the stage. And I was like, great, that was a, we know where you're at. But always in the foreground, in the background, excuse me, was that metal scaffolding fire escape thing and then those projections on the screen. Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I loved it because it almost was like, remember where you came from. It's always, it's omnipresent. Right. Well, and I just... These I, roots ran deep. I think to have a very simple set allowed us to focus on the story because it could have been really easy to go hyper-realistic with something like this and it would have just been very distracting because yeah. we're not living in a necessarily a historically accurate space that this story is creating. It's more like, no, no, no. It's about the substance and the expression not necessarily about submerging yourself in the world. Right, exactly. And the set did a great job of displaying that. What else I think helped was the costumes. Yes, especially having that like dichotomy of the this like grungy set with these nice suits. Well, I say nice. What I love is that the coats kept changing, but they didn't look like high-end coats. They looked like those tacky, you know... Oh, we got red coats now, and then we got blue coats now. Right, they were like the, uh, what are they called? Like the, the trendy sports jackets. Right, 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 right. You know, like that everyone had, you know, uh, which is ironic because I think now, like, how much a sport coat is now, super expensive. And I'm like, everyone had one back then. These guys probably just, like, went down to the, the Salvation Army or something and got four coats that looked like. But anyway, it wasn't until they, honestly, they donned those red sports jackets, those red suit jackets. At the end of Act well, 1, that they started to look... Like the Four Seasons. Well, and, and look prominent. Right. And real. And, you know, the the other thing that I liked is that you had... Excuse me. You had those shirts underneath. Tommy and Nick had these nice shirts. And what I appreciated about that is even though where they're coming from or what they're trying to be, they cared about... Their appearance. Yes, it was like, I may have come from humble beginnings or something, but I, I don't have to look this way. You know, it's it's a story that we've all been told, kind of thing, Mm -hmm. or we've all heard. So they they still try to put this front up. Um, So yeah, those suits were. I mean, you can't go wrong with a great fitting suit. You just can't. And Jip DiCarlo. Oh, he with the flower in the pocket. He, I mean, Quintessential mob boss, just mm, he, yeah. perfection looking. The dresses. Can we talk about, uh, oh, what's her name? Mary? Delgado. Delgado's red dress. I mean, and mm-hmm. that hair. I mean, it's definitely oh. very quintessential 50s into 60s. That was brilliant. It was beautiful. And, it, and I feel like it really reflected her personality. So I, I loved, I loved that. I loved the... The angels' outfits, these beautiful pink dresses with the white gloves, and that hair that they had that was like... That coiffed, like, mm-hmm. beehive. Yep, the sim- what we expect from groups like the Supremes and the Shirelles and all that. You know, it it really... The, it, that all hit the mark. All the men had that great East Coast Italian cut hair look. Mm-hmm. Even crew had that. Mm-hmm. And know. just, it gave us what we were expecting. Yeah. Which in this, when you're talking about a show like this, it's, these are the good parts to have what you expect. Because you need some sort of familiarity to get you to care about the characters. Right. Right. So, um, well with that, let's go ahead and move on to lighting. Yeah. I, I, okay. It yeah. was very, <laughs> I mean, it's very bright, 
lighting, which is what you'd expect from a musical, but iconically, they have those, like, the round, like, what am I thinking, where, where you're standing, like, behind the Jersey Boys as they look out into the crowd, and so you see the, the four spotlights. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you talking about the end of Act One, where we get the the we get to see from like behind? They're facing the crowd that's upstage. Yes. And they bring down the lights, the like almost like the floor lights, those those mm-hmm. yellow, warm yellow, whatever lights, and they're pointed. It's like the lights they use the light of psych, and it's pointed out at the audience and mm-hmm. see the yeah 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 that that's an iconic thing I. I also like... See, to me, this felt like a concert, but not like a concert. Like, we've seen shows where the lighting, like, six or something, where lots of colors and everything's going nuts, and it's like, yeah, it's a concert. Where I'm like, the music in this suggested that it was kind of... It felt like a concert, but they still kept it very much like a a play. Yes, it still had the intimate lighting when it needed to have it in the scenes. um, But then also kind of gave us, like, they were... I mean, they were on stage. And I also thought, I mean, you mentioned it was bright. See, to me, I thought it was warm to dim lighting a lot of the time to communicate the shady dealings going on. I thought that there was bright lighting at some moments, like when they came up with these hits, but a lot of the time with dialogue, it was warm or it was dim. Mm -hmm. And I was like, "Eh, because there's this underline of trouble. Mm -hmm. You know, they're above. It's like... um, it's like uh, um, what's what am I trying to think of? Like one of those pranks that they play, you know, when they like take an onion and they cover it in caramel. Mm-hmm. Caramel's all these hits, but underneath, uh, not so much, you know. Yeah. And I think the other thing that that made the stage seem bright though was the projections on the back. Yes. Which I loved. It had that comic book. I mean, it was comic book. It's called pop art. Ah, yes. It's, um, it's perfect. Well, and it, uh, so what I love about it is it was uh, pop art was started in the 50s, 60s time frame. Oh. Um, because it was, it was making a commentary on commercialism. Okay. Which I think is really cool that they incorporated that into Smart. this because this show also kind of shows what commercialism has done to their personality yes that's smart kudos like i did not know that i see to me i was just like oh cute it's it's comic books and yeah you know like the first time i saw it even thought of like uh, rocky horror uh mystery science theater 3000 with Mm -hmm. the the way they were you know oh big girls don't cry or whatever like you know these these comic book images, you know, and I was like, I don't know what this is about. It's also entertaining. The more I saw the show, I was like, yeah, this is great. I didn't realize that that's the history of pop art. So that really makes it even strong, an even stronger design choice um, to right. make. Right, exactly. And I think that that really just shows how they tied everything together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of tying things together, I, we got to move on to the direction then. Which I thought was fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really smart things that were made, especially considering how a lot of people don't think of Jersey Boys as really being that deep of a show. Um, But it really is. And it's all done through just small, subtle imaging. That way, it's a show that everyone can enjoy. Um, Whether you're there just for the hits, or if you're someone who, like me, loves to get into the nitty-gritty of the story. 
Right. And I've already mentioned about my idea about flip-flopping the songs in the book. And, you know, I could be wrong and whatever. I'm allowed to be wrong. This is not a bylaw. The other thing I want to say, though, is it, it could have been a typical jukebox musical, something like a Mamma Mia or something. But they recreated these performances and took us behind the scenes as well, which kept it new and different. So... You know, one of the things I liked was they recreated, I think it was the Ed Sullivan Show performance. I think so. Where they have the TV cameras, and then the projections were like black and white, which was cool. Mm -hmm. But we also got to see what happened before and after that. Yes. Which I think a lot of people didn't see. So it was a great way to show these performances that they were doing. So the camera's there, but then also to kind of take the camera lens and go to the left or to the right a little and say, here's what you maybe didn't know about the story, which I think is a key part in telling these jukebox musicals. You know, a lot of people go to these shows just to hear these hits, which is great, great music. Right. But it's also like, especially for someone like us, who maybe didn't grow up with this music per se, it's, it's nice, nice to know the story behind it. Yes, 100%. And it, to me, it gives it a lot more relevance in the now. You know, there are some times when, when, when jukebox musicals are done that I'm like, why are we doing this show? What is mm-hmm. the, the purpose? Are you trying to, are you actually trying to tell a story or are you just trying to do a cash cow and cash, cash in on people's love for a particular artist or genre? Right. And so I thought this was a really great job in marrying. A, a, a very famous group who had a very interesting story as well. Not every performing group or artist has that kind of interesting story. And that was one thing that attracted to me the show is I was like, I didn't know this about And I wouldn't that. have expected that? No. Especially the ending about, you know, Tommy DeVito ending up in... in Trouble with the mob and having them be put up in Vegas and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and but, truly to be like, you ever want to... You ever want to see the power I have? Say the name Tommy DeVito at any casino in Las Vegas. You'll be thrown out in 30 seconds flat. You know, I'm like... I, these well, are the kind of lo- stories you want to hear about. Right, especially nowadays. I think a lot of people think that, you know, mob stuff isn't real or, you know, whatever. But it it was. It had an impact. It, oh, yeah. It, it It's part of our history. Absolutely. Um... And to me, it was like adopting a familiar movie to the stage, keeping those familiar things in while making, while still making things new and original. Yes. And that's why I mean like changing up like we knew the songs, but making sure you didn't, I don't know, making, making the songs the focus without making them the focus. Yes. You know. Making the why to the songs the focus. Right. So that you weren't just like, I'm going to hear, can't take my eyes off of you, or December 1963 or whatever, but I... You know, you walk away with the whole score yes. in your head kind of thing. Um, so. Also, uh, one thing that I feel like gets left out a lot when we talk about Jersey Boys is choreography. Sergio Trujillo's choreography. Which, I mean, it, there, it wasn't a huge dance show. No, I think but, that's why it's left out. Is, right, but it did have choreography that was very simple and got the job done because it was in the style of the time period. Well, it was a recreation of... Um, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons choreography that's one thing that a lot of people I maybe forget or put on the back burner but at this time these groups had everyone had choreography mm-hmm. you had a style that went with your performance you know uh, he would later go on to win a Tony Award for Ain't Too Proud The Life and Times of the Temptations and I mean recreating the Temptations who were known for their dance moves well he did the same thing here with the uh, Four Seasons 
You know, right. and so, look, the Temptations were obviously much better dancers. <laughs> we all know that. But the Four Seasons still, they had a, a style of moving. They had a way that they presented themselves and everything like that. And he embodied it. And not just that. He, he also did a, a beautiful finale number. An effective use of the ensemble. Mm-hmm. And that opening number. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you had two different time periods, and you had to incorporate those two different styles of movement. Yeah, I thought the the overall movement in the show was absolutely great. Just great use of bodies in space. Uh, the last thing I want to mention is the music. Yeah. Which we, I mean, we kind of mentioned, I, I don't think we need to dwell on it too much, but it's memorable, it's gorgeous. The orchestrations and the mashups that exist. Those were beautiful. We have to give a shout out to the orchestrator in this, because, yeah, I it, it it's... It's it a took, skill, it's an art. Well, and it took something that we knew, that we loved, that was popular, and refreshed it. Yes. Yes. Um, the vocal demands, especially by the actor playing Frankie Valli, were incredible. Oh, yeah. I and mean, that that score and that range is, oh, that out of the park good. So they, what a brilliant score and music to be working with, you know. The show has had several notable performers, including John Lloyd Young, Christian Hoff, Daniel Ro- Richard, Robert Spencer, Andy Carl, Richard Blake, Sebastian Arcalis, Michael Longoria, Jonathan Cable, and Titus Burgess. Let's now talk about the theatrical impact um, this show's had on theater, on its history. Um, I mean, it is the 12th longest running musical in currently, Broadway yeah. history, so which, that's an impact of sorts. Which I chuckled at while I was pulling this up, and I had to remind myself that that's, it's about Broadway, because I was like, but it's still running, and I'm like, it's running off Broadway. That doesn't count as a Broadway, you know, one block, one avenue, 8th Avenue separates it. From continuing its run. True, but also what happens behind the scenes does dramatically shift between Broadway and off-Broadway. Oh, absolutely. Um, For me, theatrical impact, or in my opinion, theatrical impact, it put into the tomes of the theater the musical catalog of the four seasons. And love them, hate them, you know, I think that's an important piece of music to put in there. It is, an, it is a piece of music that defines America and the progression of rock and roll. You know, okay. There are so many hits involved in that that it, it, it did capture America at some point. Yeah. You know. Um, it also, in my opinion, brought another successful jukebox musical to the stage, and I think that's very important. A successful jukebox musical. Um I think jukebox musicals, you know, they've been here in the past. I think they're here to stay, especially as I don't want to say we see pop culture and musical theater merge because they've always kind of been together. Right. But, you know, as commercial, as Broadway becomes more commercial, you know, you sometimes need that allure, that pull of 
you know, a mama uh, or an ABBA or an MJ or Billy Joel or the Temptations or something to to pull in audiences, you know, the producers are going to want. So to be able to put together a successful jukebox musical, not just one that's like a glorified concert and you're like, really, I paid $120 for that? Oh, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I don't think that the it's necessarily about Broadway becoming more commercial because I think Broadway's always been commercial. I think it's more about pulling audience members in from a different um, pool of people. Well, I mean, because you have your you have your tourists or your people who appreciate the music and maybe wouldn't be the first person to say, "Hey, I'm going to go to a Broadway show." Well, we, we, we talk about this, and, and maybe this will be a subset pod episode, but more and more shows are done with the mindset of cost-benefit be- cost analysis. And so some shows just don't have substance or, you know, that's more geared towards how much money can we make. There's not art for art's sake being done. The boundary's <laughs> not being pushed. The audience isn't being challenged. They're putting something up that they know is just going to rake in a bunch of money. And that's becoming more of the norm. Whereas shows that challenge you or make you think or um, really, you know, push the, the, the theater into the next level um, are kind of getting pushed to the sideline. Um, that's why... That that's where I'm coming from when I say commercial theater, you know. But we're getting sidetracked. Back to Jersey Boys. So um, the other thing I'll say is it create. You know, I I still think that 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 flip flop thing where the music helped propel the story and the book commentated on the music was was interesting. I at least for me, and and maybe I just haven't seen a show or I'm just ignorant. I don't know of a show. It I. I haven't seen that. More I've seen where songs comment on the story, on the book, rather than the book commenting on the music. I mean, I think one thing that would be fun to figure out that I just don't feel like we have time on this podcast, and maybe I'll pose the question to our listeners, um, what is it about Jersey Boys that made it so successful comparatively to other jukebox musicals? Why did Jersey Boys run... As long as it did. I mean, I think one thing I'll just say to throw out there, I think it's the book. I think it's the story, the meat of the story. It wasn't just the music. It was actually learning the story of the group. Mm-hmm. So and, it made you appreciate the songs even more. Exactly. It's the same reason why I think MJ is a successful musical. It's the same reason why I think Ain't Too Proud was successful. It wasn't just a, as our friend um, Tasha says, it wasn't a cookie cutter musical. Mm-hmm. It was learning about where things came from, the inspirations, how things were developed, the dynamics of the group in that. But I agree. I'd love to hear from the listeners and think what they they thought. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure with how many tours and productions and how mm-hmm. long it ran, somebody out there also saw the show. And what did they think? How did they get it Right, out? because it's not the first successful jukebox musical. It's not the last successful jukebox musical. It's not the you know, most successful jukebox musical, but it was extremely successful as far as jukebox musicals go. And I think that it'd be interesting to just try to pinpoint it because for this show, for some reason, I can't. Yeah, that's fair. 
Uh, moving on to societal impact, I think that this provided a show that was intergenerational. I think that's important to, to keep in mind because um, this is a show that grandma could go to and be like, this is the music I grew up with, whatever, but she could also bring her granddaughter, mm-hmm. you know, to show her. And I think the granddaughter would absolutely love it. One little, like, snapshot thing for you, for instance, and I, I'm going to date myself here. For anybody who remembers the channel, the WB. Mm-hmm. The WWB with the Dancing Frog. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back in like 2000, 2001, when they did their big Friday night lineup, their theme song for that was Oh, What a Night. And it was the Jersey Boys version. So for me being, you The know, Jersey Boys version? You mean the Four Seasons version? I'm sorry, yes, the Four Seasons version. <laughs> for me being, I'll say, you know, 12, 13, 14 at that time. Um, and like I said, I'm dating myself. There's my age, everybody. Oh, man. Um, I didn't know the Cessoiria version that came out in 2000, that dance French version. I knew the actual Four Seasons version of Oh, What a Nine because of the WB. That was my introduction. I remember thinking, like, this is such a great song. Like, oh my gosh. Blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, like, Walk Like a Man. How many of us have seen Mrs. Doubtfire remember Euphigenia mm-hmm. Doubtfire walking up the hill in San Francisco to Walk Like a Man? You know what I mean? Like, we mm-hmm. we know these songs. We've seen them somewhere in our, our youth and our uh, ingrained in something we saw. And all of a sudden, this show was tying it together. So it, it was intergenerational in that, like, our grandparents could take us to it, and then we would put the dots together and go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize it. Like, ah, oh, yeah, I do know this music. Ah, oh, and you get that aha moment and go, you know, mm-hmm. which I love. I yeah. love. I, I, what I also, I mean, this goes back to one of the things I love is being an old soul and loving like old funk and soul and everything. A lot of modern music is sampled. So when I hear people like, this is the greatest thing in the world. Oh my gosh, it's so creative. I mean, like, it's pretty cool, but did you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Uptown Funk is actually sampled from Rapper's Delight. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember showing that to my friend, and I blew his mind, you know, and he was like, wait, what? And I said, oh, yeah, like, this original version, it just it is fat. It is awesome. It's great, you know? And I think that's amazing to, to kind of realize because... <sighs> I've been thinking about this, actually, being an older person, not really kind of having my finger on the zeitgeist now, the modern music. The Grammys just happened and all that. That time period of the 50s and 60s, as music was really changing, and there wasn't much to, like, sample or cover or what have you, besides maybe jazz, you know? Mm-hmm. They were creating a whole <laughs> new sound. Whereas, like, today I'm kind of like, I'm not saying that there's not a new sound being created, but you know what I mean? Like, there, there's a lot to draw from, and if you look... Well, and you have more ready access to various sounds. Whereas before, you either had to go out to the clubs, or, you know, you had to catch it on the radio, and how you got it to the radio was even more different. Right, so that, that's why I'm like... Shows that, that that cover events and groups and things like that from that, like, 50s, 60s, even 70s. It was, it was such an explosive and changing time, creative time, 
it was insane the things that were coming out of it and and yeah anyway sorry tangent thanks for coming to my ted talk my point is i think this show is intergenerational i think that's a huge societal impact because and i can see you have a thought about that what did it do hope what what else did it do say it say it well, and this is where you would say it brought a whole new generation to the audience. Oh, but it did! But, but I don't think that that's really the main thing with this show. I think it brought a new um, a new type of audience member to the, to the theater. It brought a new audience me- type of audience member. You know what audience. I mean? Like, yes, it might have, you know, brought in, uh, you know, grandmas bringing their granddaughters and all this other stuff, but... I think more importantly, it brought a, a group of people who maybe wouldn't have gone to see shows in to see shows and say, oh, hey, maybe I do like Broadway shows and I'm going to give another, I'm going to take this opportunity to go see something else now that I've gotten through a musical. Um, because you do have, like, I think with Jersey Boys, like, particularly, you have these middle-aged white women who could bring their husbands and the husbands would actually stay interested in the show. Now, I think that that's a very bad stereotype, but it's a real, it's a realistic stereo, like, it's a realistic thing that happens. Um, you have these macho men who are afraid to admit that they like Broadway shows. I don't know why Broadway's for everyone, but, but I think the most important part for me is that it brought another demographic in. Okay, that's Um, fair. That's fair. You know, because it has mobsters and it has familiar music so that, you know, that for some reason, like through the 80s to the like 2000s, it was seen as, you know, very effeminine, effeminate so what to, you're go saying, to, Broadway, as to go to Neil see a Broadway Patrick show. Patrick Harris brilliant put it, it's not just for gays anymore. Exactly. Like you can, yeah, exactly. Straight men can go to the theater and Broadway not be Broadway is for seen. everyone. Yeah, Broadway is for everyone. Well, and it's Theater's like, for everyone. It's like I mentioned when we did Rock of Ages. Anytime I meet someone and they just go, oh, I'm not a musical fan. I'm just like, you just haven't seen the right show. I guarantee right. there's a show for you out there. You haven't seen it yet. Right, exactly. Because like even, even to go as far as to say your dad, I can't see him going to a lot of Broadway shows, but I could see him enjoying Jersey Boys. Yeah. I could see him enjoying Rock of Ages. Exactly. I could see him enjoying The Audience or Churchill or... Right. And so sometimes you need... I mean, I guess if you really want to compare it this way, sometimes you need a gateway drug into musical theater. We are not endorsing drugs (laughs) on this podcast. In fact, we're we're just going (laughs) to shuffle along. Um, To is the show still relevant? And, okay, I don't think the show is relevant on Broadway. However, I think it is perfect where it is playing right off Broadway. Just one block down, right at New World Stages. I think it's a fantastic show for regional houses because it's recognizable, it's familiar, it's great at selling out and all that. You know, great cash cow. But Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, so I think that one of the best things that Jersey Boys can do is to be put in a lineup for a regional house or it, for a theater company. And the reason being is it takes money to produce work, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have a, in order to have a successful company, you have to be able to cater to 
a wide variety of patrons. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be a, a company that is producing new works or taking gambles on shows that you're like, I know the community needs this and I need them, you know, to see this, but they're only going to see it if they have a season ticket. You know, how am I going to encourage them to buy the season tickets? I think Jersey Boys is going to be that perfect, like, like we said, cash cow or that like universal, like, hey, come see this show so that we can rake in the money to put on the more. Um, I was just about to pile on to that. Like yeah. uh, the friend of the, the show, Benjamin Kintish, when mm-hmm. we interviewed him about his show Life Review, um, said, you know, take a chance on that newer work or whatever. This gives theaters that opportunity to do a newer work, slip that newer work into their season because they can make up whatever their perceived loss might be by having that. Right. It's like it's kind of a fail-safe to help with the gamble. It helps balance the season out. Exactly. Which I think in order to be a successful theater company or um, a regional house or even a community theater... You need that because it is important to produce new works. It is important to push your audience's uh, boundaries because that's what theater does. Yes. You need to challenge them. They need to have familiar and unfamiliar works to balance out a season. The other reason why I'm not so sure it's relevant on Broadway is just given the content and the atmosphere that exists right now on Broadway, I don't see it just having a place. You know, I, I think... It's time has passed. Yeah, this the dynamic, the makeup of the Great White Way has changed, and that little nook that's been carved out by a show like Jersey Boys, it's filled. You know, so I think it's perfect right where it's at. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. So, we have had the good fortune to see this show count them up five times. Three on Broadway in 2011, 12, and 15. Most recently off-Broadway in the fall of 2021, and then on tour in Salt Lake City in 2013. Okay. Five times. Five go rings! Oh my gosh. Thank you, Eddie Izzard. Um, one of the first things that I remember, um, happy memory, was this was friend of the program, Karen, your mom. Hi, Karen. Um, <laughs> this is one of her first shows that we took her to in Salt Lake at the Capitol Theater because uh, this was her right around her birthday. And we had dinner at the Atlantic Cafe, RIP. So good. Mm-hmm. And that bottle of wine, it was fun. Give her a catnip glass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we took her to this. And I know we had seen previously Annie at Kingsbury. This was like the start of when we really, all of us really started to go to theater together. And this was like, oh my God, like, hey, wait a minute, Karen? Well, and I You think- like to go to theater? <laughs> like... You, you come over here to sit by me. Like, we're going to be BFFs. See, that's the part that I find really interesting because <clears throat> my love of musical theater came from my mom because she would have, we'd watch movies together like Annie and Grease, um, and she encouraged me 
to do, you know, theater and do up with kids and. I wanted to agree sing along with your mom. That would be fun. That would be fun. Um, But, you know, she's the one who encouraged me. Like, she introduced me to theater. And then I took that ball and ran with it and became obsessed with it. And then taking her, like, for some reason I had it in my head that my mom wouldn't like to go see new stuff. Um, So I was like, oh, let's go see Jersey Boys. And then I watched her enjoy it and we talked about it afterwards. And I realized... My mom does have that love of musical theater. She just hasn't had as much exposure to it as I did after she introduced it to me. Um, So it was a really great way to kind of tie it back together and realize that we both had this shared passion. I went on the broad end of the spectrum and just dived headfirst into musical theater. I was like, this is my life now. And my mom was a little like, you know, hey, yeah, I'll see it. I I like to think I had a little part in that. Um, yes, yes. You know. You did help. But that's that's another story for another time. On our anniversary, perhaps. Um, uh, now, switching gears and, and, and coming back to New York. To me, I think, and we've covered this, this was a fun and exciting show. I think we enjoyed it. It was a fun and it, exciting? Yeah. It, oh, what a night it was. <laughs> Watch out. I'll, I'll pun the hell out of this, you know. I'm on my second cup of coffee right now. Um, this was the first show we saw at the August Wilson Theater, um, which is, it's a beautiful theater, and it's kind of like a Roman, well, it's like an Italian kind of, exactly, yeah, yeah, Italian villa on the outside. Now, what's interesting about the August Wilson Theater is it was the first theater named after... Um, any African American in the in the theater, mm-hmm. uh, and, and obviously August Wilson's a playwright. If you were paying attention or following us during uh, Black History Month, we featured him um, as one of our our uh, influential African American people who uh, helped shape and change the theater. But um, they have all sorts of posters from shows that have been done by August Wilson all over the. The theater has a huge lobby, and you step down to the bar, and then also in the lobby is this huge merchandise area. It's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's yeah. beautiful. Oh, yeah. Well, and it follows the the New York rule, which is you have to go down to go up, or you have to go up to, to go, go down. down. Yeah. You, you don't just get to walk in a straight line. In New York, it's always up to go down, and welcome to New York. But yeah, no, and, and I love that it's just, it's it's held on to its history, but also recognizing... This, this great, great person. And I'm also excited the fact that Broadway is continuing to diversify and recognize where we've come from and who's helped make the theater great. And, you know, we're getting the James Earl Jones Theater here in July. Mm-hmm. The Court Theater is being renamed. Um, I'm excited to see what other theaters might be either built or renamed. I know there's stuff in the works. I'm waiting to see for, um, you know, we have the Ethel Barrymore, but I, there's rumor that there's going to be another theater named for... Uh, a woman on the stage. You have Helen Hayes. You have Ethel Barrymore. I'm just saying there, and 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 we've had this talk before. What what other great woman of 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 the theater should should have a theater named after her? And so we'll have that discussion another time. But yeah, so first show at the August Wilson Theater. Um, we met the cast afterwards, who were incredibly nice. Mm-hmm. All of them were so nice. One of my favorite things is the second time we saw the show in 2012, I remember them walking out and they were all like, 
oh, you're here for us? Like, like they were just so humbled. Like, they couldn't believe that we were there at the Kiss and Cry line, like, for them. And I'm like, you're so sweet, you know? It, it literally felt like a Utah, like, meetup. Just like overly a, polite. A, 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 oh, I keep wanting to say pie and beer, and that's not right. It was punch and pie. Punch and pie party. Punch and pie party, yeah. <laughs> Where they're like, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. And, you know, and it's just, and, but they were so nice. That was the one um, that had the guy who played your buddy, buddy the elf, elf at, at Pioneer. Pioneer. And then he went to play Bob Gaudio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they were fantastic. That's also where we learned about um, the actor that plays Frankie Valley, the intense vocal both warm up and warm down that he has to do. Which, I mean, makes sense. That is such a vocally demanding role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, and the last memory I have, it, what I should say we have, was the most recent production that we saw at New World Stages. Um, an actor that I worked with, I mean, we worked with, but you know, I, I was his dresser, Jonathan Cable. Oh yes, Jonathan Cable. Such a sweet, sweet man. Um, it's always a good story when you have a nice actor, you know? Mm-hmm. Not all actors are divas um, at all. And this one is far from it. He's such a good guy. Uh, anyway, he played Nick Massey. He was on the tour of Jersey Boys, and now he's here in New York. And he's so good in this role. Um, so it was amazing to get to see him. Uh, anyway, we, we got to see him in the show. But I remember almost to intermission, we started to smell like chlorine or something. We are like, that's... What an odd smell. But we yeah. thought it was like from the gazillion bubble show. Right, right which door. funny that still hasn't come back, but that we didn't piece that together. Well, it hadn't been back at that time. Yes. And so we're like, oh, whatever. Well, intermission happens and we're do-do-doing. But we look over and like in the vents on the side, we can see like lights like flashing. And it was them with like flashlights over their like Dimerex or light circuit board thing. Turns out there was a huge electrical malfunction, and they ended up having to cancel the show. It's the first time that I've ever, I'll say, I think we've ever been to a show that, because of technical difficulties, got canceled. Mm -hmm. And it was such, such a bummer, because, you know, act two starts with Nick Massey kind of taking over. Yes, and so So, I was so excited to get to see Jonathan Cable take over in it. And I was excited for the whole, (laughs) the towel moment, you know, the whole towel speech. That he gives um, to, to 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 Tommy, um, so um, yeah, it was a bummer. But it still, it was nice to see the show, and and what a great show. And Jonathan Cable, you did an amazing job. If you listen, so we are loving the way things are continue to go, and hope that you can join us in a seat at a theater soon. You'll be able to catch Jersey Boys at New World Stages, located at 340 West, 50th Street, here in New York City, eight times a week. We also want to let you know that you can now become a producer and patron of our show. Simply visit patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our different backstage passes. And thank you, thank you, thank you in advance for even considering becoming one of our patrons. We couldn't make this show happen without your support. Amen. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by The Good Louds, Ultra Cat, Quantum Jazz, Milton Arias, and Billy Murray.